Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 27. We will try to get to 30, verse 38, verses 13 through 38 this morning. But we will stand for the reading of verses 18 through 20. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The book of Acts chapter 27 Verses 18 through 20, just to set it up, of course, uh, for those of you who know, or don't know, uh, the Apostle Paul and over 250 shipmates are being caught in a storm. And we'll pick it up at verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed on the next day, they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Please be seated. Many of you know what it's like to go through a storm in life and to be in a situation where it's dire and desperate. You're at the verge of giving up. No sun, no stars. A Spiritual Storm, that's the title of this morning's message. And there's no shortage of metaphoric application. Allegory is all over this chapter. um, Certainly, I won't even make an attempt to hit each point and try to uh, draw out the metaphor. If you overdo it, you you lose um, much of the truth that's in there. So you've got to balance it. Most of the earth will skip God's word today. Uh, It is routinely unused, unappreciated, and unnoticed by people on this planet. This morning, as we return to Paul's dramatic journey to Rome, we hopefully will be benefiting from the lessons coming out of it. His Christian life was action-packed. And God had promised this servant hardship, he promised him opportunities, and he promised him deliverance. Well, when we look back at chapter 9, we read, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This was told to Ananias, who went to baptize Paul, and, and uh, God sent him there, and he told Ananias, Paul's going to suffer for his name's sake. In chapter 26, in verse 17, Paul, giving his witness, said, I will, telling his audience what God said to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Well, Paul was promised to be used, that he would have the hardship, that he would be delivered. And he went on to suffer shipwreck multiple times, snake bite. Many discomforts, betrayal from churchgoers. I should add beloved churchgoers. I don't mean that sarcastically. Paul loved the people that he ministered to. And um, it it had to have broken his heart as well as oftentimes um, uh, upset him with a righteous indignation, as he does mention in the Corinthian letter. Well, finally, he was martyred. He was put to death for Jesus Christ. But not without first taking boatloads of people to heaven with him. At least 
being a big part of that. And not only in his lifetime, but subsequently. This is how God decided to use this man. God has a deeper meaning for the word deliverance than what we might have. God's dictionary is different, is not different. It is superior. He goes beyond our mere meanings, and he sees uh, from the eyes of eternity. Paul was delivered from failing. Well, he would not say that, but as we look at his life, and of course, he's not the only man in character, man or woman in Scripture. There are others who faced hardship for Christ. Well, Yahweh in the Old Testament, Christ in the New, same person. Uh, You think of Jeremiah, think of Naomi, how much she had to put up with in life. And yet, ultimately, the Lord delivered her from her hardships, too. Paul knew that he did not deserve God, but he also came to know he needed God. And that's a big difference between those who routinely uh, pass by the use of God's word. For those of you who are growing, you know, and you're still in the home, mom and dad provide so much for you. Uh, maybe you don't yet sense your need for God. Well, you should, because uh, there's a big life ahead of you, and you want to face it the right way. This man, Paul, not only was he saved, but he could not live without serving. See, these lessons, they come out. That's why they're recorded for us. The Bible comes out and tells us. Paul said, these things are written for our edification, to make us better at serving God. Now, like all the apostles, uh, we have this in common with a shameless culture and society. They lived in a t- at a time when culture was unabashed by their sin, the decadence. It was everywhere. And we are increasingly faced with shameful behavior that not long ago would have been unspeakable, but now it is paraded. But we have something in common, even with those who, who parade their multicolor flag in defiance of Christ, boasting that they are not ashamed of their lifestyle. What could we possibly have in common with them? They're not ashamed of their lifestyle, and we're not ashamed of ours. That's what we have in common. That's about it. We are not ashamed of Jesus Christ, nor his gospel, his word, his miracles, his promise to return, and his judgment to come. They might not care for his judgment. That will not be enough to stop it. We should have the audacity to live like we love Jesus around people who love defying Jesus. We don't have to be abrasive, or intentionally so. Uh, We may be accused of that nonetheless. You know, you stand your ground, you defy wrong, you're going to be accused of all sorts of things. That's why you have to stand your ground. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those pretty serious words that Christ left for us. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this, does, this mandate does not change. In his time, it was a sinful and adulterous generation. What do you do if you, go, if you are a pastor of a church and you don't preach the word? 
because you're ashamed to preach it. You're afraid people won't come back. Or maybe you've got some other sinister motive for not preaching God's word. What Christ says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, it's a pretty big deal. Sinners may resist God's Son, but again, the wrath of God abides on this condition. And that's why we're here. That's why Paul was going through what he was going through, to try to bring the gospel to people that they could make a sensible choice themselves. Second Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Well, evidently, there were Christians in Paul's day that were ashamed of Christ. You say, how can they be Christians then? Well, that's another sermon. But sticking to 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He never felt he was Rome's prisoner. He was the prisoner of Christ. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Salvation will come through Christ, but not for those who refuse him. And what we're seeing on this ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea 2,000 years ago are people going through, metaphorically, the storms of life, and they will be given the invitation to believe Christ. What they do with it after that is between they and God. We look now at verse 17 and hopefully can come back and with these verses color in everything I've been introducing or trying to introduce at the least. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Well, Luke writes, he says, well, they thought they received their... Paul said, let's not do this, but he was overruled by the centurion, the ship's owner, and captain. And Luke inserts, they thought that that was the right thing to do. It was, it was going to be a disaster, of course. Knowing this ship ends in shipwreck. And the south wind blew, an ill omen uh, that is uh, misleading. This ill-omened, misleading sign passed right by those who were in charge. It didn't pass by Paul. And not always in the Bible does, does, is the south wind indicative of coming disaster. It's used twice again in Scripture. And it uh, actually, before get, Paul gets to Rome, the south wind will blow when he gets on another ship and they'll arrive safely. But this is a different situation. This was not the season to be at sea. And they, were, they, they had warnings. This is a perfect picture of an unbeliever in prayer with human logic and human effort, wasted hope. I don't know why people have a hard time believing that there are false religions. I don't know why they have a hard time believing that they're all false except one. This is a practice that we, uh, you know, a principle that we, we practice your wallet is for you. Well, maybe your wife and something like that too. But a stranger cannot just come use your wallet. There are rules. Well, with God, there are rules too. Uh, those prophets on, the, on Mount Carmel that uh, were going against the prophet Elijah, they're very sincere. 
very devout. A lot of human effort went into their parading themselves around the altar and cutting themselves and chanting for hours, all for nothing. That's what their religion, their religion got them death. When the south wind blew softly, everybody was unaware that a typhoon was stalking them. Elsewhere, as I mentioned, the south wind is relatively harmless, but not here. The quiet before the storm. This is a spiritual storm. Satan does not want Paul to make it to Rome. It's not what hell wants. Hell fears such servants getting a platform to preach. Well, we see this today if you use media and you're getting too many followers and you're not following the uh, agenda, you get canceled. Well, Satan is trying to cancel Paul. Because you've got to say, well, God is sending him to Rome. Why would he let them get in such a horrific storm? Well, because we're looking at one uh, way spiritual war is conducted. This is a spiritual event. God knows why he allows these things. He does not always tell us why. Job is, of course, one of the poster boys for such an experience. Luke clearly recalls today, the day the south wind blew. It was like this warm air coming up from the south. Well, there's going to be a violent wind coming from the northeast. The rocks of Malta, they are awaiting this ship. And it's interesting that as Luke is going through this and keeping a journal, it's going to be future scripture for them. It's present scripture for us. It made it into God's history book. God felt that this was important enough to benefit future generations. And it has become Holy Scripture because of God's involvement and the lessons that abound. Supposing that they had obtained their desire. Well, again, the captain and the, pilot, the owner of the ship and, and Julius, the centurion, they felt confirmed, not heeding Paul to stay put in fair havens. They wanted to make it just 50 miles west to Phoenix, and they won't get there. The ship will never dock again. Many an unbeliever refuses to hear, heed the warnings that the believers give. And so we tell them, beware of the devil's charm. These men felt that staying the course we're going to just have to plow through. Well, sometimes in life you do. But again, there's a way that seems right to man, but its way leads to death. And these chaps here had the warnings, but they felt they'd overcome. Well, why didn't they listen to the man of God? Because the carnal man cannot receive the things of the Spirit, nor can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. They're foolishness to him. Putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Uh, of course, that's the Isle of Crete, and uh, uh, they're gonna, the wind's going to shove them out to sea. They're going to be shoved so violently, they're going to fear that they're shoved to Africa, literally. Well, we come back now to verse 14. But not long after that, not long after that south wind blew, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurachlodon. Now, this Eurachlodon is a, a nor'easter, you, you could say. Um, their sense of well-being was short-lived. And they have passed the point of no return. 
they just want to go, you know, inland uh, to the north, but that's where the wind is coming from, and they can't. They won't let the ship do it. This tempestuous headwind arose, uh, this Eurachlodon, uh, they surging out of the north. Tempestuous there, translated in the English. In the Greek, we get our word typhoon from that Greek word that is translated tempestuous. So that gives us an idea that these men are going into um, very serious, uncooperative, and deadly weather. Verse 15, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Men, there are times you're forced to let her drive. <laughs> That's biblical. As I mentioned, they couldn't return to fair havens. And, uh, and if you're offended by such a little humorous statement like that, it's because you've been indoctrinated. You've been told that any humorous things that uh, you know, somehow makes you inferior and stuff like that. I, I hope you don't succumb to the world's uh, sir, uh, just junk. Anyway, sometimes in life, we get caught in a storm that we knew we had to dodge, but we couldn't dodge it because of others. That's why we couldn't get around the storm. Somebody else has just put us on the ship. We have no say-so at that point. That was Paul's condition. What could he do? The only, again, the only two that we know of that could have opted out were Luke and Aristarchus, and they decided they're going to stick with Paul. They're not going to turn to him. What courage those men exercised. Well, control was drastically diminished of the ship, verse 16, and running under the shelter of the island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. So the little dinghy, uh, keep it from flapping around and banging into the ship, uh, they, they secured it. The sailors will try to use that to abandon ship without the others later in the story. But all the forces seem to combine to make impossible the trip to Rome. Again, it's a spiritual storm. Satan is involved. God's going to let the storm play out, but he's going to do his thing in the midst of the storm nonetheless. And if you, you've been there in life, where you have these storms in life and you want out. And God is saying, I'm not going to let you out yet, and I'm going to be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I still say, Lord, I, I still want out. <laughs> I know you're here, but this is not pleasant. And that, um, I'm, I'm being kind to, to the experiences. Verse 17, when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on, Sirtis, sand, on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And the Greek is really just Sirtis because that implies the shoals, the shallow waters where the sandbars are. When, it, uh, when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. Well, the cables were draped under the ship to help hold the boat intact, like putting a giant rubber band around the hull uh, to, to try to keep it from falling apart. Now, Clauda is about 170 miles from the Africa, African shore. And so for them to fear that they're going to run aground on Sirtis, which is in Africa, gives us an indication that those winds were pushing them hard. They didn't know where they were, but they felt, you know, just, man, the way we have been pushed to the, uh, from the north, from the northeast, we have got to be heading towards Africa. 
And so it's a pretty rough ride for them. A lot of seasickness. Uh, they could not eat for much of the trip. Uh, and as where it says they struck sail, more accurately in the Greek, they, they, uh, they lowered the gear. They, they rigged the ship so that it could be driven by the wind because they didn't have any control and they didn't want to be broadsided and capsized. And so they, they tried to yield uh, to the weather. It was the best thing they could do at this point. I don't know a lot about sailing. I know I wouldn't want to be on the ship with them. I know that much. Verse 18, And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship, they being the crew. How else does Luke tell us how nauseating, how terrifying this was? He says, we were exceedingly tempest-tossed. We were exceedingly typhoon-tossed. What other adjectives could he have used? So you have to understand, just, man, this is is a rough ride. So next time you go through something miserable in life, uh, you, you know, it helps to remember God has been there before and his people have been there before and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, we're, the simple promises of God are sufficient if you lay hold on them. Verse 19, on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard and with our own hands. Well, you really couldn't use anybody else's hands. All right. Uh, anyway, again, they've got 11 days to go. This is the third day. There'll be two weeks dealing with this storm. Uh, it's kind of hard for us to imagine such a thing in, in, with, you know, modern ships, but modern ships would just sink. <laughs> this wooden thing just got th- thrown around. Were there other ships on this sea, caught in this storm with no Apostle Paul, did they perish if they were on the sea? I think Christians should be careful not to undervalue their presence amongst unbelievers. This ship survives because of the Apostle Paul. Years ago, uh, I was working six and a half stories up, and the person I was working with Uh, forgot that gravity is brutal, (laughs) and he fell. He fell 65 feet, and as I watched him twirl, he fell so long that I I called out two or three times, and man was in the hole, and and I I prayed for him as he was falling. His head was about to hit one of the beams that were coming across, and I looked away, still praying. It hit his shoulder. He survived the fall. He lost his spleen, careless of him, and uh, use of his, his, his arm for a while, uh, forever, but he got some of it back. My point is, I firmly believe that my prayers to our God saved that man's life. There is no reason he should have survived that fall, and he did. Uh, And so I come back to this uh, to say that Christians should not undervalue their presence amongst unbelievers. It may not be something as dramatic as what I just explained. Maybe it's something more subtle. Maybe it's uh, someone going through something in life and you are there with the words of wisdom and truth and are able to uh, minister uh, the word of God. So... Uh, Be prepared for that. 
what would happen if you're a Christian on the ship, but you got nothing? You're not prepared. You haven't been in the Word. You haven't been uh, loving on the Lord and praising the Lord and pushing through moods that will rob from you everything that Christ wants to give to you if, it, if they can. So uh, there is yet another lesson. Here we have the ship of the ship of men that are you know doing what men do, trying to push forward to get to a better place from Fair Havens to Connecticut, to Phoenix to Connecticut, <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut. Sorry, uh, from from uh, from Connecticut to Phoenix. It's just a short run on the map, but anyway. Uh, There they were. Paul was stuck with them. Verse 20. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, I did not start my timer, so now time starts. (laughs) I don't like when I do that. Anyhow, uh, and you might not either. (laughs) She's like nuts. I was hoping. Uh, Coming back to verse 20. Here they are, lost at sea in the lesser sense. There's not all the souls are lost, but the ship is lost. No magnetic compass. Unable to, you know, navigate with the stars and the sun. Uh, there's no such thing as a mayday to send. There's nobody to receive it. Uh, this, this, this sickening fear that they're going to sink in these waters. Luke says, and no small tempest beat on us. They were hostages of the sea. And we have been in storms in our lives, metaphorically again, where no small tempest beat on us, driving us to prayer, trying to keep our head above water, not becoming sort of a drowning in our sorrows and our condition, understanding there's other things in life we have to still do while the other part of our life is falling apart around us or you know, in the midst of these, these things. No small tempest beat on us. Years prior, Paul was beaten with rods three times. He was whipped five times. He was stoned once. He understood beatings for Christ. Uh, you know, to avoid being beat for, beaten for no purpose. Uh, just, you know, for, for carnal reasons. It's just such a loss. Here is a man... Enduring these things for Christ, often sent by the Lord into harm's way. Well, we applaud that when we see a naval vessel sent in harm's way in times of war. Well, the Christian is always at war too. Uh, Maybe not as glamorous in this life, but it is far more uh, worthy and, and long, it's eternal. In, the math, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will compare him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Well, this is going to be... Paul's story. So he's going to have a moment of doubt in all of this. He doesn't come out of this you know, unscathed. He's, he's going to doubt. But it's just going to be a flash in the pan doubt because the Lord's going to come by and reinforce to Paul his promises. 
Jesus continued in contrast. He said, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains ascended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. He's talking about the soul. Life is going to beat on us. But if your foundation is God Almighty, the Son of God, you won't fall. You'll be beaten a little bit, but you won't fall. In contrast to the unbeliever who goes through the storm, but ultimately, great is its fall. And that will be, of course, finalized at the judgment. And so when Paul, when Luke writes here in verse 20, all that all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Paul is part of that we. We all hope to be saved, but finally we were giving up. Well, two weeks of being thrashed, cold, wet, exhausted, seasick moments, helpless. Matthew Poole was a Puritan back in the late 1700s in the days of wooden ships. And he wrote, whoever cannot pray should go to sea. And they'll learn to pray. <laughs> so, the, uh, uh, very appropriately, well done. Anyway, verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Well, the abstinence from food uh, drew Paul closer to the Lord. The unsaved were working hard. Likely on shifts, of course. Um, they, they went hungry and, and grew weak. They labored in the physical realm. Paul was laboring in the spiritual realm. Not much from Luke about himself. Except for that one statement where he says we had given up hope. He's too busy following Paul's lead to write about himself. Now, another admirable trait found in this Christian man. Then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, man, you should have listened to me. He's not gloating, but how do you not have an I told you so moment? He knows what's going to happen now because God has imparted his spirit to this man and spoken to him. And uh, sadly, it will, it, will, it will not go for those who scoff at Jesus to the end. In the end, it will be, you should have listened to me and not incurred this disaster. But it will be too late. And so that's why the Christian has a sense of urgency when preaching to souls. That today, if you harden not your heart. You, you, you know, Christianity involves the whole heart. Not just the emotions, not only the brains, the intellect, but also the will. The who I am has to, has to sign off on what the brain has been processing and the feelings and the instincts have been going over. Uh, that's how faith is born. It, it's not just this, okay, you said it, brother, I'll just believe it. Uh, that's not faith. Faith has um, got more going on to it than what the unbeliever can know until they come to Christ. And so, uh, in verse 22, and we'll come back to that a little bit. Verse 22, And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Now, he repeats this encouragement in verse 34, to take heart. 
But true encouragement is the outflow of, of faith unto faith. It's, it's to give the other one some of what you've got. It comes out of you to make the other one stronger. And sometimes it's easy to just have faith. Sometimes you just find that you, I'm trusting God. But then there are other times you're like, man, I just not. I remember I was in trouble once like this before, and I was so faithful. But now I feel so afraid. And then God will hopefully send a brother or sister to you with a word in season and and help hold your hands up for the struggle that you are facing. Where He says in verse 22, "There will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship." Well, you want well, there'll be loss of souls, Paul. We the ship, you get another ship, but what about souls? There's a section in Zechariah. Of course, Zechariah was part of the Jewish was one of the Jewish prophets that were used by God to get the Jews to rebuild their temple after it had been destroyed and they had become complacent. But he of course dress, addresses the sinful behavior of uh, the people also. But just in verse 12 of Zechariah 7. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. It's a very simple principle. And and you know, why is it so difficult for people to see it once, once you've seen it? I look back at my own life before I came to Christ, and I, I don't know what I would have listened to. All I know is Christ got hold of me. And I, I, I don't know. I didn't benefit from somebody sharing the gospel with me uh, in, in detail. They were sharing the gospel with me briefly, but they couldn't answer my questions. Uh, Christ did. And so it's um, the storm at sea here is spiritual. The storms of life, they're all spiritual. All the trouble we face in life has a spiritual connection. Whether it goes back to the curse in Eden uh, directly or indirectly, as with um, the soul that um, just does not want to come to the Lord. And Zechariah calls it out. In chapter 7, verse 12, as I read. Verse 23 now of Acts 27. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Now remember, angels are created beings. Verse 24, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. He's granted their lives, not speaking about their salvation. Uh, not, not that they, some were not, or many weren't saved. It's just This is what he's talking about, surviving the shipwreck right now. But where he says, do not be afraid, Paul, tells us Paul was afraid. And we've covered this a few times in the book of Acts, when he stood trial. He didn't know, you know, what his, was he going to be thrown, you know, to, to his assassins or, or protected. And the Lord encouraged him there. Uh, the devil used this storm to attack God's word to Paul. How typical. God told him, you're going to go, Acts 23, verse 11. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Well, now he's on the ship and it's about to sink and he's doubting that promise. 
the Satan is using the storm to get this great man of God to doubt. He just does this all the time. And, you know, you can... That's why we, we, we have compassion for our brothers and sisters that are going through struggles. We can't wave a wand and take their struggles away. But we can encourage them with a word in season, if given by God, or we can shut up. Sometimes you don't know when to shut up. And it's, a, you know, oh, it's going to be all right. And you know, you know, just, did God give you that? Or you just felt that, that you just felt awkward and you had to say something. To learn how to be quiet. It's a discipline, and it's, um, uh, it, it's, it doesn't help when you're going through something and you get vain encouragements. I find it to be a little discouraging, actually. I know they mean well, but I'm too busy in the fight to, to you know. I'd rather someone say, look, it's going to get ugly. Would you stand your ground? I'd rather hear that than hear, it's going to be all right, <laughs> when I don't know if it's going to be all right according to my understanding of what all right is. All right to me is to have the problem immediately be resolved. Well, Paul would have liked to have immediately been in Rome, standing in front of Caesar, preaching the gospel. Yeah, well, first the storm, though. Later, he would write, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He learned that at sea. As Matthew Poole pointed out, you want to learn to pray, go to sea. And uh, it's, it's nice to see how these, you know, uh, as much as God used this man, it's, it's comforting to see he's flesh and blood like me. He has his doubts like me. I may have more doubts. I'm sure, I'm sure I have more doubts than him. But still, he, he's, he, he's trying to serve the Lord, but he's a... Sinners saved by grace like we are. He says, to whom I belong, which reminds us of Jonah's declaration of faith. Jonah 1 verse 9. His Jonah running from God, but boasting about his service to God. <laughs> oh, Jonah is so much fun. Jonah had a hard time getting over himself. I mean, even after God did so much for him, he's hating on people. <laughs> and, and it's just a, one of my favorite prophets. Not because he's hating on people. Because he's just so honest with his feelings. The best I can share is, well, my driving. You know, what i got to put up with other people. I'm not going to tell you the other stuff. <laughs> uh, and, and, but Jonah tells us a lot. Anyway, Jonah said to his shipmates, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's a declaration of faith. But it lacks confession. What is this stuff about you fear the Lord? Why are you running from him? Well, because that's what fear does. No, it's, it's not. Anyway, uh, he says, whom I serve, Paul now speaking. It is too easy for us to seek to use God rather than to be used by God, is it not? To just get something from God instead of saying, okay, all right, this is a mess. What do you want me to do? And we can get to that place. Uh, Paul, that's where he stayed most of his time serving the Lord. Verse 25, Therefore, he says to the men, Take heart, for I believe God, that it will be just as was told to me. So he's reinforcing uh, his uh, trust in God. He did not pray with his fingers crossed. You know, I'm going to pray, but I really don't believe. 
that God's going to do anything. I'm going to do it, or maybe it'll just work out. And I think this is a good um, illustration of how to and how not to pray. He's not saying, boy, I sure hope God. You know, I believe God. It's what he's coming out, full out and saying. With, without visible reason to trust him at this point, except the word put on his heart. Which Jesus said to Thomas, you know, good Thomas, I'm glad you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. True faith comes from the inside out. Because it tallies up what it knows. It adds up what it's been looking at, what it's been exposed to. True faith doesn't just say, okay, I'll just change teams because you say so. That's, that's a lame confession. And that's what we struggle with our children. We want them to have a personal experience with Christ. We want them to tally up, to add up the truths that they are exposed to. When someone says, well, what is a man or a woman? Your mama and your daddy. That's what a man and woman is. And that just kills the argument to any sane person. But Satan masters in insanity because he too is insane. What, other, what fool would challenge God? And what fool would continue to challenge God? Knowing God, Satan would. And this is, uh, belongs to some of the mayhem that we're dealing with. So faith adds up. It, it witnesses, it looks at what it sees, and it connects the dots, and it makes its decision. Uh, that is faith. He says here in verse 25, that it will be just as was told me. Well, faith can see in the dark because it's added up. What's, it's been exposed to. And a soul without hope in God tends to be very little use to God. And I, I don't want to be that soul. You know, it's easier to follow a degenerate culture than to think for yourself. You young Christians, learn to think for yourself. Just because someone says something doesn't mean it's right. Test all things. Prove all things. There, beware, many false spirits and prophets have come. As you go through, you know, when you get into the workplace, you get into the university, if you go to the university, think for yourself. Don't give them that. It's not theirs. They don't, they're not worthy. Christians are to bring their Bibles to church so that we can be reminded. We think for ourselves. And if the pastor is backing up what he is saying, as I always do, then, then of course you don't have to, you know, Pull the fire alarm. But if he starts speaking things that aren't backed up in Scripture, then you've got to think for yourself, or else the devil's just, you're going to be his plaything and on his payroll. So, if you, you younger Christians, if you leave with nothing else today, leave with this. It's easier to follow a degenerate culture than to think for yourself. Which will it be? Because if you're not thinking for yourself, you will be enslaved. And that enslavement can have eternal consequences. Uh, we adults aren't here because what we believe in is a joke. It's the real deal. And we know it. And we want to bring you with us. But the time will come where you have to sign off on it. Faith has got to be yours. And there's no reason, when you have a pastor like this, there's no reason why you should fail. And if you're 
visiting. You, of course, you know I'm serious. No, I'm, I'm, I, anyway, verse 26. However, now there it is. <laughs> However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, if you're a non-swimmer, it's like, what? And there are non-swimmers on this ship. We'll get that next session. But, and how God cared. You know, God can save the I can't swims in life. And so, you know, he tells them, I believe God. However, <laughs> it's like, oh man, the fine print gets you. This is not good news. Oh, it's good news, considering what the bad news could have been. So, uh, this is life. And we're talking about those vain encouragements. This is not one. This is a serious encouragement. I'm trusting God. But you're going to get beat up wet. <laughs> he didn't know he's going to get a snake bite to go with this. Verse 27. Now, when the 14th night... Oh, let me pause there. We don't have to have the miracles to struggle through life uh, or to, to understand truth. I don't need miracles to draw conclusions about God that I've been exposed to by God. That is a miracle in itself. Truth is a miracle in a fallen world. And uh, we Christians, we love the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We sing to him, a sight unseen, because of what he's done in our hearts. Now, sometimes we're not in the mood to sing. I mean, sometimes in church, I'm not in the mood to sing. (laughs) I'm just... And, but I know it. I know that. I know what's going on. It's not something I'm indifferent to. But I enjoy watching God's people sing. Uh, I, I've always found that to be a blessing. Verse 27, Now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Well, two weeks in a storm out of hell. That's a long time. Uh, they had a lot of time to be miserable enough, to, to, to be desperate enough to listen to a man like Paul. Who's going to take command of the ship? He just started. He's taking command now without saying, I'm taking command. Uh, as he says here in verse 27, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, today's Ionian Sea in the Mediterranean. These are branches of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it is not uncommon to find churchgoers with a restless spirit. Uh, and again, a, a metaphor that abounds with uh, teachings for us. Paul said that we should no longer be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the craftiness of deceitful plotting. Well, you can be tossed to and fro because you just have a rest, restless faith. And you see, you know, someone goes, they go to a good church, they leave that for no reason. They just okay, i got to move on. You know, um, that's not something to encourage. I get it. But uh, I think that, what can you do with uh, folks that won't dig in the, you know, form a perimeter, dig a foxhole, and get ready? Uh, you know, if you got Rolling Stone gathers no moss. And so where he says, and we were driven up and down the sea... I think there are Christians that are driven up and down in their faith for no good reason. And if that's you, I think you can overcome that by just being aware of what's going on. Restlessness is not an excuse to be led by your own spirit. We are children of the Lord. As many as are sons, uh, sons of, the, uh, of the... Oh, the rest of the verse. Don't tell me. As many as are... 
the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Uh, Paul writes to the Romans. Anyway, he says about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. The only way they could have known that was the sound of the breakers, that, that thunder of the waves uh, breaking on the rocks and the coast there, the, the, the shore, hitting the shore. And so um, that sound would um, indicate to them that land was close, verse 28, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and then they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Uh, so Paul was right, we're going to run ashore, uh, you, they didn't calculate that, so it's 120 feet deep, then it's 90 feet deep, so they're making their way uh, to shore. A fathom is a, a Greek uh, length of about 6 feet. Uh, verse 29, then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for a day to come. Why, why do why they use bow and prow and stern and aft? And, why can't they say front and back? But they do. It's a nautical deal. And I'm sure our brother Jim can tell us why they do that, being a, a sailor man. Anyhow, uh, this dropping of the anchors as they did would guarantee that the front of the ship, the bow, would face the shore because they're going to beach it. That's their plan, to beach this ship and, uh, uh, and, and pray that God just, you know, doesn't let them get injured. So he says, and pray for day to come. They, they, didn't want, they, they wanted to survive the night, verse 30, and the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. So, uh, what a selfish something to do. God does not work well in a me, me environment. Uh, me, me is not good for the faith. And instead of using their sailor skills to help their shipmates survive this beaching of the ship, they looked out for themselves. Uh, you know, you have to use your strengths, your faithful strengths, to pull people up, not shove them down. And this is illustrated by this. Uh, they can't beach this ship, barring a miracle, without their experience, the experience of the sailors. The Roman soldiers don't know how to get a ship to beach, and these sailors would have known. But they felt like, you know what, we got a better chance if we abandon ship. Why doesn't Paul tell the uh, ship's captain, hey, your men are abandoning ship. He goes to the Roman centurion and the troops. Well, the captain might have been part of the sailors getting off the ship. That's one reason why. Uh, but the soldiers were really the only human force that was capable of stopping the escape. And there's another lesson. In the midst of a spiritual storm, there are physical responsibilities that we still have. You can't say, well, I'm not going to go to work and expect the paycheck to keep coming in. Uh, God has got this. You know, God has got this when you can't do anything else, maybe, but uh, you have your responsibilities, and we're going to find that to the end. The girding of the ship, all these guys were fighting to stay afloat. And had they all just sat down, uh, the ship would have capsized or sunk, or it would have been it. So uh, this is um, serious stuff going on. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So Paul makes it personal, and they believe him. 
Okay, Paul, we didn't listen to you one time. But ever since that, I told you so. <laughs> you shouldn't have sailed. We, we, you've got us now. Uh, Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They throw him into the fire. Paul is saying these men got to stay in the ship because that's where the promise of God was given. And it will not be fragmented. Now, the natural fact is, again, without these seasoned sailors, uh, they could not beach the vessel and they would have no chance of surviving. So Paul doesn't hesitate to act. Neither did Julian. He didn't have to be told twice. His men were on it, verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Uh, These soldiers would have been good at killing. In those days in the Roman Empire, they had ample uh, uh, experience in putting down rebellions and dealing with assassins and, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, the sailors offered no resistance because, again, they knew how to kill those soldiers. Uh, the, the, the soldiers knew how to kill, not the sailors knew how to kill the soldiers. So, anyway, if you're not confused, uh, then stick around. <laughs> anyway, uh, Paul is heated. I don't know what time it is. Well, I do. I don't know what time we usually get out of here. I'm too busy doing God's work. <laughs> Verse 33. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Well, that's not true. That part about the hair falling from any of you. I can prove that. All right, well, anyway, back to this. Uh, where it says, because uh, here he is in command. It have been two weeks since leaving Fair Havens. Uh, he says, you haven't eaten or drank in two weeks. Well, unless you insert a miracle, which I don't think we have a right to inject a miracle into this. I, I think the idea here is that you haven't had a meal, a good meal. You've been eating on the fly, drinking on the fly. Two weeks without food or water would be a miraculous event, possible for God. But it wouldn't fit the story, because if they enjoyed that kind of a miracle, they would have had faith to not doubt, and it would have just been a whole other situation. So if you say, no, I believe they went two weeks without food or drink, well, I'm not going to argue with you, but knowing how Scripture is given to us, I would say that the, the implications are that Uh, you're going to have to eat now a more substantial meal. Verse 35, And when he had said these things, they took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when we had broken it, he began to eat. Uh, So uh, Paul's taking the lead. This is not communion. Thanks before a meal was not uncommon to the Jewish people. And Paul writes about that to Timothy, about eat food with thanksgiving. Eat anything you want with thanksgiving, he, he pretty much says. And uh, this is not communion. Paul would not have ministered the bread and the cup to unbelievers. Uh, and additionally, there's no mention of the cup. We, you know, we, we Christian language, we read, oh, he, gave, he broke the bread, he gave thanks. Well, that doesn't mean it's communion, it's a meal. Uh, is what's going on there. I, we try to say at the communion table, if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, please pass on the meal. Uh, the early church, uh, they had to 
they had to change things about the communion table because it was abused. They did not uh, say, well, you can't have communion. Paul said, you better examine yourself. It's not our job. It's your job to examine yourself, whether you are in the faith or not. Uh, and we, we see churches just get out of hand with this, denying people, com- believers, communion. What is this part of the body of Christ? How do you do that? You're not a member of this church. I don't want to be a member of this church if that's how you're going to do it. Uh, that's just kooky, man, outside of Scripture. The whole idea is communion, koinonia. We have this in common. What do we have in common? Christ, not the local church. Christ is who we have in common. Did Christ, uh, uh, well, did Paul die for your sins? Did Peter die? Christ died for our sins. Well, anyhow, uh, verse 36 Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. This boosted morale and it reduced it, reduced uh, probably some of the resentment they may have had for the sailors. There's a good time to make this point. The one who will not forgive is the one on Satan's payroll. If you don't learn to forgive, uh, what is what is the outcome of that? Jesus gave some very serious warnings about that. I guess you could say, if, if you're not going to forgive, you better not sin. So uh, if you struggle with that, you're, you're in, it's your flesh. You're not giving it to Christ. You've got to give God time to work. Paul gave two weeks in this trip, but uh, it could be years. When I say forgive, it does not mean restore. So if someone is, um, you know, uh, just not trustworthy, you cannot entrust them with certainty. You forgive them, I'm not holding it against you, but you can't hold my wallet again, (laughs) something like that. You know, that kind of trust has to be earned. Verse 37, and in all, we were about 276 persons on the ship. Verse 38, so when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Well, the wheat was first, then the butcher, then the singer. There used to be a company here, Wheat First Butcher Singer, and it just irritated me, that whole name. All right, all right, back to, we're almost done, and I see, like, you're ready. So, lightening the ship so they could have more control on on the sea with the wind driving them to the beach. But again, God does not do for us what we can do for ourselves. And I'll close with this from Exodus chapter 14. This is at the crossing of uh, the, the Red Sea, Yamsuf, and Moses is there with the people. The sea is not parted, and Exodus fourteen fifteen, and there we read, well, Moses said, the Lord will fight for you, verse 14, and you shall hold your peace, verse 15. And Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. You've got to do things. There's things out. We have our responsibilities. And waiting for God to do it all will probably end up meaning God won't do anything. Uh, if he does, it will still be a rebuke. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, um, an exciting story. So many lessons to consider in, in reading how the Christians handled themselves while being beaten up in this storm so that when we go through life's storms, we would better understand and better know what is expected of us from, by you, how we should perform, 
trust you to do our part. That uh, Satan sends storms into our lives. It rains on the just, it rains on the unjust. There are natural storms and then there are spiritual storms. But the whole time you are there with us, ready to remind us of your promises, ready to make good on the things you say that you're going to do. May you find us always pliable in your hand, shaped by the master potter. If you've been listening and you have not opened your heart to Christ, but you sense God wanting you, wanting a right relationship with you, not based on your guessing, not based on your opinion, but based upon who he is and what he says. If you would like Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you've got to confess it with your mouth. You've got to come get it. He died on the cross. He took the pain. And you have to make the confession that you believe it. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner... I have broken your laws. I have fallen short of your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. There is no one else who loved me enough to die in my place, taking my judgment. There's no one powerful enough and clean enough to rise from the dead to demonstrate that it is complete. My salvation is finished. So I come to you, and I ask that from this day forward, you would be the Lord over my life, that you would be the Savior of my soul, and that you would give me your Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.